0: As we are going through the Gospels, and we're we're jumping around from one Gospel to the next. We'll be in Matthew today and next week, however. And, and I don't even know how well we're going to do going through chronologically. There might come a time that we'll, we'll jump back. But uh, for the most part, we're going to try to walk through chronologically if we can. Today we are looking at Matthew chapter 8, and one miracle within really a group of three that go together in chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with Jesus coming down from the mountain after teaching the Sermon on the Mount and immediately he is uh, approached by a leper who asks him for healing and he heals the leper and then he comes into the city of Capernaum and that's where we have our story today with uh, a Roman centurion and then after the interaction with the centurion that we will look at this morning Jesus enters into Simon Peter's home and heals his mother-in-law and then uh, that evening as people are coming to him and they're bringing him many demon-possessed people and he's casting out the spirits and he's healing all who were ill and Matthew finishes this section by telling us that this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And so one of the things that is going on in this chapter that that, that, that he took and carried away physically is kind of the idea. And, And one of the things, if you want to spend some time looking at it this afternoon, is when the leper comes up to Jesus, the leper just says, if you're willing you can make me clean. But Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. So the the leper didn't say, come put your hands on me, because he wasn't expecting that to happen. Nobody touches a leper. But he just said, he believed, if you are willing, it, it, it doesn't need my willingness. It doesn't need some, something outside. It merely needs your desire to actually heal me. If you're willing to do it, I know I can be healed. But Jesus takes a little extra step and touches the leper. In a similar way, after our story, when Jesus goes into Simon Peter's house and he sees his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, he touched her hand. He touched her hand and the fever left her and then she gets up and she actually waits on him she she immediately starts serving as soon as that happens but in both of these situations the leper and the mother-in-law jesus touches them and it is through touch that they're healed jesus's willingness to heal them but he he specifically touches them and and i just want that to be in the the background of our minds as we get into the middle parable of jesus and the centurion's request All right, or not parable? Excuse me, miracle story. Miracle story. So we're gonna we're gonna pick up with it in verse five, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him. And a a centurion is literally a commander of a hundred, whether or not he actually had a literal hundred underneath him or not. That's the word, centurion. So he is a person with some responsibility in the Roman army. And he's imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not sound, found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Now, having considered what Jesus did with the leper, that he reached out and touched him, and considering what Jesus did for Simon Peter's mother-in-law, that he reached out and touched her hand, uh, hopefully what is standing out to us is the fact that Jesus doesn't have any physical touch with anybody in the story. Most specifically with the servant who is lying paralyzed and tormented at bed back at the centurion's home. But Jesus doesn't have any contact with him, not because Jesus was unwilling. We see in verse 7 there that Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus expressed a willingness to heal, a willingness to come with the centurion, just as Jesus expressed a willingness with the leper, I am willing, be cleansed. And and this is really a a great statement on Jesus' behalf because Jewish people, as as we see in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, when she says, you Jews won't even take a cup out of our hands and you're going to ask me for a drink. You don't drink after us. You don't use our utensils. And the same thing is true with the Romans. The, The Jewish person, a good, righteous Jewish man, would have nothing to do with Samaritan. He would especially not have anything to do with a Samaritan woman. And he wouldn't have anything to do with a Roman if he could help it. He most certainly would not go into a Roman's house. Because just entering into their house communicated fellowship with them. There was such a a view of going to a person's house that it was expected that if you went into their house, you were willing to accept all that their house provided and stood for. This is why when Jesus is trying to get Peter ready to go to Cornelius' house, what does He do? He gives him a vision of all this unclean food. All these animals that are ceremonially unclean. Things that He would never have eaten. And three times He says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, I've never had anything unclean enter into my mouth. I would never kill and eat any of these animals. And that's when the Lord says, What I have made clean is clean. You know, don't call what I have made clean unclean. And then when Cornelius' servants show up, Peter recognizes and realizes what God was trying to communicate to him. And so he is willing to go to Cornelius' house. And even part of his gospel presentation when he is there is, You know, it is not lawful for a Jew to be in a Gentile's house. It's not right. It's not decent. It's not done. And yet here is Jesus saying, I will come and heal him. He is willing to go into the Romans' home. He is willing to have fellowship with this Roman centurion who who isn't just a Gentile. Think of it. He is one of the occupying force. He is one of the guys that came from another land, is living in Jesus' land, and telling Jesus and his fellow Jews how to live. He is the enemy. To the jewish people and yet jesus is willing to go to his home jesus is willing to touch him jesus is willing to have fellowship with him just as much as he is willing to touch a leper and if anything this is probably the more severe in the jewish mentality than just touching an unclean leper because at least that leper was jewish this man he is roman And so what we see here is that Jesus is willing to to cross barriers. That that even though the message was predominantly for the Jewish people of Jesus' time, and He even said, I've been sent to the sons of Israel, the children of Israel. There was always the belief and the understanding that the Gospel message was going to expand. That grace is available to everyone. Not that it's just, just for the Jewish people, but that the grace to be healed and to have healing and have forgiveness. It was for everyone. And Jesus is willing to give it to, to the centurion. He is willing to give it to the centurion's servant. Or slave as it's sometimes translated. Grace is available to everyone. Not everybody in Jesus' time understood that. Or agreed with it. Sometimes I think we can we can feel like there are certain people that are outside the the realms of God's grace. They're just too distant. But it's available to everyone specifically and maybe particularly to our enemies. Because that's, that's who God offered His grace to, right? When we were His enemies, when we were in rebellion against Him, Christ died for us. And, and therefore, He has told us to love our enemies. And He has commanded us to go out and have grace and mercy for our enemies and so we can even look at our enemies today politically uh, on the world stage those forces that would fight against us maybe even locally those people who seem to cause our lives such grief and you know god's grace is for them too And Jesus was willing to take it and give it to the centurion and and to take it to his servant. But of course, we we see here that the centurion has other ideas. In verse 8, the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. The centurion has an understanding of the way the Jewish world works. He also understands who God is and who Jesus is and who he himself is. He has a similar reaction to Peter, I think, who said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He has the same reaction, in fact, the exact same words as John the Baptist when Jesus came to be baptized. And John the baptizer said, I'm not fit to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. That's what he is saying when he says I am not worthy. It's the same thing that John said when he said, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not fit. I'm not the proper person to do it. It's not suitable for me to do it. And the centurion is saying the same thing. Lord, I'm not fit for you. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm a Roman. Not only that, I'm a a commanding a, a, a commanding officer in the army. I oppress your people by my very existence here. And I I keep different dietary laws. I don't do all the things I'm supposed to do that you would have me do. I'm not fit for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. He, He is communicating beyond the fact that he doesn't feel proper for Jesus to come to his house, but he also is communicating he doesn't feel it's necessary. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't need to come and touch him. You don't need to come and pray over him. You don't even need to be in the same room with him. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he gives us his reasoning for this. He says in verse 9, For I also am a man under authority with soldiers appointed under me. I've got soldiers under me too. And I I think this is so interesting that he says, not I'm a man with authority, but I'm a man under authority and with soldiers underneath me. He is recognizing that he obeys and that he communicates. And I wonder if there's something of him that he is communicating. I recognize that you serve under the authority of God the Father. Or is he just saying, I'm below you. I'm a man under authority as well. But I also have some authority. And I, I say to... I've got soldiers underneath me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. And here's an interesting thing. That word slave is what we are used to seeing in Paul's writing, doulos, a slave. Earlier, the word for his servant who his, um Lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented, it's actually a word that we would use for a young boy. So and, and sometimes it's used of like a king and his servants that attend to him, they would use that phrase. It's kind of the idea of a, a more tender affection for one who serves you, somebody who is closer to you, who is intimate in your life, not just somebody who takes care of your yard. But this, the slave do this and he does it that has a distant feeling to it so here you have the centurion who says look i've got plenty of people under my authority i tell them to go do this and they go i tell them to come and they come but yet he's he's coming he's asking for healing for one who is close to him who matters to him on a personal level and so the centurion as he's as he's Talking about his authority and how he says these things, he, he's looking at Jesus and he's thinking to himself, Jesus has the ability because he has the authority to do such miraculous things. He can heal a leper by a touch. Surely he can heal my servant by a word. And I don't think that his power, his authority, is limited by proximity, by agency. But all he has to do is just say a word. And this wasn't a normal thing. I mean, we've, we as New Testament believers, we get to read this and see it happen, and so we're familiar with the idea. But this, this centurion is coming in here with new ideas. Nobody has ever expressed this before. I mean, if you go back to the Old Testament, you've got things like uh, uh, Elisha healing the, the son who sunstroke. He sends his servant with his staff, right? He doesn't just say, Oh, heal him, Lord. But the servant has to run with his staff and lay the staff on the boy. And then the boy gets well. So we see this need for some physical connection throughout the Old Testament. Where they, you know, instead of just saying, Oh, water be less bitter, no, let's throw something in the water so that it will become clean. There's always some agency going on. And the, the one time when God said, just speak, Moses goofed it up. He still felt the need to strike. But here you have a centurion in the Roman army, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, who we understand from the Gospel of Luke, probably is something of a a proselyte of the Jewish people. In fact, in Luke, uh, the centurion doesn't even come and talk to Jesus. He sent other people to talk on his behalf. First, it's some Jewish leaders in the city. They come and they say, hey, uh, would you do this thing for him? He's a really great guy. He's done a lot of good things for us. He's helped us build our synagogue. He's deserving of you to heal his servant." And then Jesus is actually on his way when the centurion sends more friends and says, don't come to my house. I, that, I didn't even feel myself worthy to come and talk to you personally about this. But just say the word. But Matthew, because of the way Matthew is writing, he, he leaves out these agents on behalf of the centurion and he has the centurion communicating directly with Jesus. Jesus. And this is not much different than, say, today when the news media might announce the president has announced a certain initiative, but you never saw the president actually stand up and give the speech. His press secretary did it. But we all understand when the president's press secretary says something, the president has said it. We understand that. So when the news media says the president said X, Y, Z, we don't call them a bunch of liars. No, we understand what they meant. Well, the same is true in here. Matthew has taken out the Jewish leaders who were speaking on behalf of the centurion because he doesn't want to paint them in a positive light. He wants to focus our attention instead on the centurion and his actions and his views and his speaking. And the centurion's views are very focused on God. Very focused on Jesus. Not even really focused on what he wants, which is for his servant to be healed. But he is focused on who Jesus is and what Jesus' abilities are and how great Jesus is and what Jesus' authority is. And he allows that to inform him to the point where he says, you don't even have to come to my house. I'm pretty sure you could just say the word and it would happen. How amazing is that? And what it is what it is, is that he's, he's got a certain view of Jesus. Whereas the, the Jewish leaders are looking at Jesus wondering, who He is and where He comes from and trying to find out where they can find some fault in what He is saying so they can then discount everything that He is doing and teaching. The centurion instead is looking at Jesus and thinking, wow, if He can do all these things, He can probably do this too. He doesn't even need to come to my house. He has such faith in who Jesus is that He's even able to introduce new ideas of healing and faith that that the people didn't have a concept of. And so as we as we think about this faith need and re, and the title of the sermon earlier was foreign faith. Part of that foreignness is the fact that this is a new idea. This is foreign to the ways that the Jews think. But here the centurion he is taking it to another level. And and One of the things I think that is important for us, especially as we think about having faith in Jesus Christ, is that faith requires a proper view of God. And the centurion has a proper view of God. He has a proper view of Jesus. He he is looking at the evidence and he is saying to himself, he doesn't need to come to my house. He can heal just by a word. He has that faith in Jesus because he has a proper view of who Jesus is. He has seen Jesus working. Maybe he has heard some of Jesus' teaching. He is allowing it to affect him. And that is giving him a different way of viewing Jesus, whereas the religious leaders, their view of Him is skewed. They're trying to figure out how to catch Jesus in something. They're trying to prove Jesus wrong. They're trying to figure out how they can use Him or rid themselves of Him. But the centurion his view is on Jesus and what he is capable of. And because of that, because of his proper view of who Jesus is, his faith is strong. His faith holds on. Our faith requires us to have a proper view of God. To, to truly believe what is he capable of doing, what is it his will to do, Sometimes I think we have false faith in things that are the improper view of God. Certain um, prosperity gospel messages. They give us the wrong view of God. He is a provider of things. And so what do people's faith come into? Get those things. But no, that's not what He is. The centurion isn't so much focused on getting his servant healed at all cost, but on proclaiming his faith in Jesus and knowing that Jesus can do simple things. Like just say the Word and it will be done. And, and what I love here is, is this, this response from Jesus in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, He marveled. He marveled. That word marveled means that he was struck with wonder. It's the same word. Next week, we're going to have Jesus and the disciples in the boat and the storm, and the disciples at the end of it, they marvel at Jesus. Well, here, Jesus marvels at the centurion. It's the same word. We're used to people marveling at Jesus, we're used to people being dumbstruck at things that Jesus said or Jesus did. But here, Jesus marvels at the centurion. It, He's almost dumbstruck. I can't believe what I just heard. He is amazed at the faith of the centurion. He, he, he rejoices at it. He turns to those who are following him and he says, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This is above and beyond anything I have experienced or seen. This is amazing what I am hearing. And then afterwards, in verse 13, what does Jesus do? He says, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. Jesus doesn't go into the man's house. I think think the centurion's got a bad bad view of himself. I think he is definitely worthy to have Jesus come into his house. I think it would have been wonderful if Jesus had gone into his house. But the man didn't ask Jesus to come into his house. The man asked Jesus to just say the word. And rather than reward him or honor him by saying, no, 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 I'm going to come into your house. I want everybody to know that I'm okay with you and you're okay with me. Jesus does that with some tax collectors. He does that with Matthew. He does that with Zacchaeus. But he doesn't do it with the centurion. No, instead he honors the centurion by saying, it is going to be done for you as you have believed. As you have believed I could do for you, I'm going to do for you. And there is a certain amount of joy in this passage in regards to the centurion. Jesus is is ecstatic. He marvels. He is amazed at the centurion's faith. And I think that is true for God in our lives. That God delights in our faith in Him. When you trust Him and you believe in Him, and you take the little things that you have learned and you allow that to help you grow in your faith, I think that makes God very happy. He takes joy in our faith in Him. He rejoices in our faith in Him. He delights in it. And and this is one of the reasons why I believe that God allows us to go into places where we need to have faith in Him. Remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This centurion has conviction in something that has never been seen. You can say the word and he'll be healed. Not only that, we see in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. This centurion came believing who God is and believing that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, that He would do what I have asked Him to do. He has faith, and He is found to be pleasing to God. He is found pleasing to be to Jesus. As we trust in God, as we have faith in Him, as we hold on to Him in times when it looks like we can't see how He will work. I don't know about you, but I don't like those times to last too long. I like for them to get over fast. They're painful. They can be very painful. They can be difficult. They can wear you down. And yet, in those times when you don't see how it's going to work, and yet you trust in the Lord and you have faith in Him and you you believe, not just, oh, I believe, I believe, but no, confidence in things that you have not yet seen. Assurance that it's going to happen. That is pleasing to God. He takes joy in us when we act in that kind of faith. Conversely, we know that He doesn't take great joy in people who don't believe in Him. The Israelites grumble. There's no food. They don't believe that He's going to provide food. They don't even bother asking Him how or where. All they do is complain. There's no food. He provides food. But He's not pleased with them. He doesn't rejoice in their faith. But here, Jesus rejoices in the centurion's faith. He is is pleased to give him what He wants. Whereas He had touched the leper when the leper did not ask, when He goes into Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law by the touch of her hand, here He is willing not to touch because the faith is in the Word. That He would speak. In fact, throughout this passage, the idea of speaking just keeps showing up. Uh, It's so often these ideas of of speak, saying the Word, and then even when Jesus heard this, that he, He understood what was spoken. He took it in. He comprehended it by hearing the spoken Word. And now He speaks... And the servant is healed. Unfortunately, in between Jesus' response in verse 10 and his healing in verse 13, and we see that the centurion was right, uh, the servant was healed that very moment. That very moment. But in between that, Jesus says in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling the Jewish people around Him that there are many people from east and west, in other words, outside of Israel. Foreigners. Gentiles. Non-Jewish people. There will be many who come from east and west, and they will recline, they will rest, they will eat, they will celebrate at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will be in fellowship. Remember going into the Gentiles' home was having fellowship because it was like you were willing to eat their food. Being willing to eat people's food and offering food to other people is still very much a sign of fellowship with one another. So when he says they're going to recline at the table, that means they're going to be part of the family. They're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom. Now there is some irony. They are going to reside in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, those who are inheriting the kingdom, those who are growing up in the kingdom, they will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is ecstatic over the centurion. He says, hey, there's going to be a lot of people that you don't expect. They're coming from the east. They're coming from the west. And they're going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those specifically who do not respond like the centurion, who are not responding in faith, those who think that they're in just because they're children, they're going to be cast out. They're going to get kicked out of. Not just the doors are going to be barred to them. No, they are going to be cast out of the kingdom into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be sorrow. There will be anguish. Not joy. Not delight. Why? Why? Because they don't believe. They don't have faith. In Jesus, They don't trust even though they don't see how. Instead, they are putting themselves up against Him. They're fighting against Him. They rebel against Him. They don't accept His message. And so Jesus is saying here, there's no, there's no pedigree involved. It's based on faith. If you believe in Me, you're in. It doesn't matter where you came from. But if you don't believe in Me, if you don't accept Me, If you reject me, it doesn't matter where you came from. You're out. And and this is a message I think our day and time is not quite as accepting of as maybe previous generations. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is no mercy for those who reject Jesus. That's what getting cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, teeth means. That's what the outer darkness means. No mercy. And I think we kind of have an attitude that there's always going to be a little bit of mercy. There's always some kind of mercy. I mean, God is a God of love. He gave His Son to die on the cross for us. And yeah, there is a lot of mercy extended to us. There is enough, enough salvation and forgiveness for the whole world if it would accept it. But for those who reject Jesus, there is no mercy. For those who reject Him, there's no no clause that gets you in anyway. What we are seeing here is faith, even from a person like a Roman centurion. That faith trumps the highest pedigree of the Jewish believer, the Jewish citizen. There is no mercy for those who reject Jesus. It makes it all the more important for us that we believe. That we trust in Him. That we don't doubt in our difficult times, but we hold on tighter to Jesus Christ. I want to encourage us as we consider this centurion in his faith that, that he recognized, you don't need to come to my house. You can just say the Word. You've you've got authority, and I'm a person under authority. And if I can tell a servant to go do something and they go do it, I don't have to watch them. How much more so can God say something, and it happens, and it's fulfilled. That was how great His faith was, and I want to encourage us to have such faith in God that we would trust His authority over the world. That that if He has declared something, it will happen. If He has said for something to, do, to be done, it will be done. And so let's go to Him in faith. Ask Him. Lord, say the Word. Have this happen. Give us healing. Give us restoration in families and in friendships. See us through the dark days. And believe in Him. Believe that He will make those healing touches in people's lives. Have faith in Him. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And let us pray for those who are in the process of rejecting Jesus. I pray our hearts go out to them. Because everybody doesn't get to heaven only those who believe in Jesus Christ. Let us pray for those who reject him, that they would repent. It is not something that should fill us with joy or happiness, but terror at the truth, that there is no mercy for those who reject Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to you as those who have believed in Jesus' name. We believe in his sacrifice on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. Lord, we believe that you have called us after his name to believe in him, to be your children. And we strive to live our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit for you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to have faith. That we would trust You in ways that we have not seen You act yet, but that we would believe that You will act. And that You have authority in this earth and over the people of the earth. We pray, Lord, that we would have faith in You no matter what we see in the news, what is going on in the world, that our our focus would be on You. Our hope in You and our trust in You, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would be pleasing to You in our faith. That we would honor You with our actions and our decisions day in and day out. And Lord, we lift up to You our friends and family and loved ones, neighbors. Father, those who don't believe in Jesus, they actively are rejecting Him. Lord, we pray, have mercy on their souls. Open up their hearts that they might hear and respond to the Gospel message. We ask these things today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.